good. Hey, it's good to be back. It feels like a really long time since we've had chapel, huh? So uh, with that in mind, we're going to resume our study in the book of Romans. Last time we were together, it was Romans chapter 1. Come on. And now we're in Romans chapter 2. And excited to hear from our apostle, pastor, father, (laughs) visionary leader, Joe Rostek. Amen. I will not receive the title of father. Get on out of here. Whoop you with the Bible, son. Let's go to Romans <laughs> chapter 1 as I resume what the Bible has to say about things um, by God's grace. Romans chapter 2 is going to be our text for today. But to remind you, in Romans chapter 1, we learned about Paul being an apostle, him wanting to visit Rome, and then the wrath of God being revealed against humanity and all the wicked things they were doing from a depraved mind. Now Romans chapter 2 is continuing that thought. And let me just share this with you guys. The book of Romans has basically one entire diatribe that we're going to learn what that definition means in just a minute. But a diatribe that starts in Romans 1 and goes all the way through to the end of Romans 11. So I would encourage you, if you really want to understand the questions of Calvinism versus Arminianism, why Arminius are right, Arminian is right and Calvinism is wrong. Um, the whole understanding of free will and agency and God's plan for Jew and Gentile, you got to go from one all the way to the end of 11. The whole entire portion there is one point he is making. So as we are now going in and out through our chapel times, like you know, starting and, and, and ending, you've got to remember there's a whole thought going on here. He is starting off right at the end of chapter 1 saying, that there used to be a time when humanity knew God through the preaching and the teaching probably of, of Adam, Noah, and them, and then they walked away from God, and they went and did all of these things, and that cycle has continued to happen over and over. And it's not only just from the preaching, but it's also from what's in their hearts and their conscience, and then through the creation. So it's like, we, we, we understood God. God had told us who he was. We rejected him. We go into depravity, and then we, we come through his judgment or through times of separation, and then no man is found innocent because they know in their conscience and in creation that there's more than them. There's God, and that God is creator, and that God is a lawgiver. Okay, so now when we go to chapter 2, he is now going to speak to the Jewish people who had a inheritance given to them by Abraham. And Abraham is going to be a key figure coming up in 4 and 5 of Romans. And that through that inheritance, they were supposed to be different. And so though they can all chase their, uh, trace their genealogy all back to Abraham, they're not really Abraham's seed. The ones that are here now and, and the mass, vast majority, the masses of them, Paul is saying in this letter, you are not really Abraham's seed. You're not any different than really the Gentiles who didn't have the opportunity to have all the lineage starting with Abraham on down. And then a key part of what he's going to keep talking about is the law, the law. So what they're boasting in, what they're saying they have that was given to Moses and that was for them to be a guide to the blind, they're not actually any better than the Gentile because they keep sinning with the law as the Gentile is sinning without the law. Now, what will come up here is a little bit of a theological question that people debate over is, what happens when the Gentile does the things of the law, though they don't have the law? And remember, we talked about this, Jackie, and there's different sides to the discussion. Some are going to say that Romans 3 squashes any hopes of the Gentile being saved apart from the gospel. So that means if they did not become sojourners or converts in Judaism, they were lost. The conscience does them no good. It only condemns them. And since the time of Jesus, until you know Jesus uh, left, till he comes back, unless they confess Jesus, there's no hopes, no hope for them and the lost tribes or unreached people group. The other side, like myself, believes that the conscience 
can defend them on judgment day if they didn't violate in their conscience the things that are in the law. And so I don't go as far as C.S. Lewis or Billy Graham and to say people from other religions who have not heard about Jesus can be saved. Billy Graham and um, C.S. Lewis both believed that. They were that inclusivist. My inclusivism is just one little... One little bump outside of the exclusive bubble, okay? The first position would be the exclusive bubble. It's it, Unless you confess Jesus in the new covenant or unless you were a converted Jew in the old covenant, you are lost. It doesn't matter where you were on the planet. You're just lost, okay? So that's the exclusive point of view. Then inclusivism can, can branch out and just keep going. So mine is literally the first rung you can have other being, than being exclusive an exclusivist, and that is the room of the conscience for the person who doesn't violate the law. Uh, the next one would be for those who did the best for what they knew, and then the next one would be everybody gets saved no matter what. Okay, so uh, Billy Graham nor C.S. Lewis were heretics. They just bumped out the exclusive part a little bit too far to a point that I wouldn't let them be leaders in my church with those point of views. But, uh, and also Billy Graham believed in abortion if it was in the case of rape or incest. So he was, he was wrong on things, okay? Let's just be honest about that. He was wrong on things. Franklin Graham, however, is not. Franklin Graham is like us. So just give you an understanding of that. Franklin Graham is more conservative, more biblical in that sense. Uh, they would say that... Um, well, let me go back and say this. I, the exclusive position, unless you say, Jesus, you're not saved. And then for me, what I'm saying is you cannot violate the law. So the difference between me and a Billy Graham and a C.S. Lewis is, see, if you are a Muslim, you're violating the law. You're an idolater by definition. You're following something that violates the law. Okay, you're acknowledging a prophet that wasn't a prophet. That would just be an easy one. Hinduism is you have other gods. So you're violating the law. What I am talking about is what I've mentioned before in this class, eternity in their heart, the, the book about missionaries reaching unreached people groups, is when you're coming to a people and they're not violating any of the laws, they're just living according to the law that they know in their conscience, um, and it's not in violation of the law. So they're not murdering, they're not stealing, they are not, um, and I would say these would be all the moral laws. I would say it would be impossible for them to know all the civil laws. I don't think your conscience could, could reveal that to you, dietary stuff and all of that. But anyways, um, then, you know, but there is some unique things in some of those villages that they have found some things very close to a tabernacle temple and all of that. But I'm just, I'm just being very strict on what I'm talking about, the moral law. So that means they couldn't worship idols, they couldn't worship their ancestors, they couldn't pray to anybody but God. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so that's why the, the other level of inclusivism that says, well, if you were a good Mormon, if you were a good this, you could still be saved. And I can't believe I forgot to tell you this because I really wanted to. Catholicism believes that now. After the Second Vatican Council, and you can watch Ben Shapiro's interview with the famous Catholic priest. He's going everywhere right now. He's done discussions with William Lane Craig as well. So if you listen to Ben Shapiro interview a Catholic priest and the Catholic priest talk about salvation, in the Second Vatican, which was not too long ago, they decided that they took the most um, uh, extreme portion of inclusivism without believing in universalism. So now that's why the Pope can say to the little boy who asked the question, my dad was an atheist, he brought me to church, can I see him in heaven? And he's like, yes, because he lived by the best thing he knew how in his conscience. So I reject that. I reject everything about that, okay? Because he's violating the law. He's, vi he's By disbelieving in God, he violates the moral law. And if you just want to take the moral law in a summary, just take nine out of the Ten Commandments because I believe one of the Ten Commandments is a uh, civil, I mean, is a religious ceremonial law, okay? So nine out of Ten Commandments, technically, if you want to be technical, are moral laws. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is really the first one, okay? And then the, and then the other ones go from there. So that's, that's where we're going to go to today a little bit, so let's be ready to discuss that. Other than that, he's really kind of, you know, remember chapters and verses are not original to the Bible, so he's ramping up for chapters 3, 4, and 5. So for us, thinking of chapters, chapter 2 is kind of, kind of like, um, 
Like chapter one, he builds us up here, and then chapter two, he kind of goes like this for a little bit. He kind of reiterates a little bit of what he was saying in chapter two, in my opinion, and then he ramps it up in three, four, five, and goes all the way up to 10 and 11. So this, this is just kind of a, a breather or a reiteration between one and three, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, but let's go to it now. But it is a rebuke to the Jews, so maybe my illustration doesn't help. Maybe it's all the way up. We'll see here. Uh, you know, you always try to honor the word of God by considering it all amazing. But then at the same time, I'm trying to describe it as a storyline. So I think you get where I'm going there. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for, whatever, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, a human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you, not, do, you, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you know, excuse me, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Because I'm upset with myself and how I read that. I'm going to read that again. I, I don't know why that was so hard for me. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Much better. I expect better from myself. Amen? So... Is this a passage telling people not to make judgments? No, it's telling them how to make judgments. Remember that. It's the same thing with Jesus. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount and learn about judgment. When Jesus is teaching them about judgment, in Matthew chapter 7, Verse 1, it says, do not judge others or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What is awesome to note, as I've taught you before in other sermon series, is there's probably over a hundred indirect references of Jesus by Paul in his writings. Oftentimes critics, especially atheists, try to say, if Jesus was in the line, if Paul was in the line of Jesus, why doesn't Paul directly quote from Jesus like modern day preachers do? Why is he just not always quoting the Gospels? Well, the obvious thing is he's writing before the Gospels have circulated. That's the main point. The second point is, is that he is always inferring to the Gospels, but he's doing it without the quotations. That wasn't his style for whatever reasons. And if we believe he's led by the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit's choice to do that. Jesus is identical to him. Jesus is saying, don't judge, lest ye be judged. Now keep going. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Is that just where we're supposed to stop and be like, I can't help you because I have a plank, you have a speck? No, look at what it says. It says, uh, how do you say to him, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye. So you get right with God. Then you will see clearly to do what? Remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then what's the very next thing he tells them to do? Make a judgment on knowing who are pigs and dogs. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. How are you going to know what a pearl or a dog is unless you make a judgment about them? If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So he's not saying don't judge. He's telling them don't judge the wrong way, but judge the right way. That is the purpose of Matthew 7 and for this first portion of uh, Romans 2. Don't judge if you're doing the same thing. You're showing contempt for these three 
portions of God, uh, his attributes. You're showing contempt for his kindness. You're showing contempt for his forbearance. And you're showing contempt for God's patience. When you act like a hypocrite, you are wearing God's patience, forbearance, and kindness thin. And that's where he ends with this beautiful statement. Do you not realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So God giving us the opportunity to repent is out of his love, his kindness. He cares about us. He doesn't want us to perish, in other words. And so that's the same thing for us. If we're going to preach the law of God and the new covenant, which is the teachings of Christ, if we're going to teach the commands of God, we should do it as a mercy to people, as a kindness to them, to see them truly repent. Are we going out to preach just to bring condemnation and judgment to them, or are we going to tell them about their sins so that they might be saved? There's a difference of heart. And then what's even worse is when you have people who say, I'm going to tell people, uh, tell others about their sin, but then they themselves are living in sin. That's hypocrisy. Now, is every person who sins a hypocrite? No, because then everybody in the church would be hypocrites. A hypocrite is a very specific person. They sin and hide it. When I sin, do I hide it? No. So can I keep telling you about your sin? Yes, because I want you to do exactly what I do about my sin. What does Joe do when he sins? Confesses it before God and man. Do the same. And I hate that sin and turn from that sin and turn towards righteousness. Amen. Now scroll up a little bit and you can see my notes here and we'll get to the definition of a diatribe. Uh, you know, it begins at this point officially because now he begins to really engage his audience. And it's what his whole audience is going to be during this point or diatribe, which is a, a bold way of making one's points, is a backslidden Jew that wants to give Gentiles a hard time about following Christ. That's the whole point. So let me skip ahead to Romans 9 when he talks about choosing some and rejecting others. That is not based on uh, God choosing who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. It's based on how God's plan works with nations. That's why when it says, God says, I love Jacob but hate Esau, when you go to that passage in Malachi, is it talking about their personal salvation? No, it's talking about the nation of Jacob, Israel, God has loved, and the nation of Esau, Edom, God has hated. But then at another point, if you study prophecy, which we know Malachi is the last book, but if you go back in some other books, uh, Edom is given the chance for God's grace. Like God's going to redeem even Edom as a nation. It's a part of God's ultimate plan. So we don't look at that just that one passage, if I was ever to debate a Calvinist, it wouldn't just be on Romans 8 or 9. It's what does the book of Romans teach according to God's sovereignty? And so God can sovereignly choose nations as he wants. God can raise up Pharaoh and take down Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's salvation, Pharaoh will make his own choice on whether or not he'll be saved. And of course, God knows that. And God can use Pharaoh when he makes bad choices. And then as the scripture says, bake in, harden that heart. But if we're already born hardened, what's the point of hardening Pharaoh more? It makes absolutely no sense. If God's already sovereignly in control, if he's playing chess against himself, why does he have to do that? It makes no sense. If the man is already blind, why is he poking out his eyes? Hardening and reprobation only makes sense in a free will perspective, that God is coming after people have freely chosen to reject him, and then he is now handing him, them over, like he mentioned in Romans 1, over to their depravity, letting the heart get harder and harder and harder. In, in other words, he's not dealing with them anymore. He's not trying to draw them anymore. He's just going to let them be an instrument of destruction. And so that's why we should fear God, because a lot of times when people think, well, I'll get saved when I get older, when I get older, I'll get saved. It's not your choice when you get saved. It's God's choice. God can get done with you right now. God can hand you over to your sin, and it will never enter into your mind again to get saved. You'll be handed over to your own depravity, your own blindness, and you will just walk headlong into destruction. So we ought to respond to the drawing of the Lord. It is his initiation. We're not like, um, like the, the heretic... Um, Oh, his name just slipped my mind. No, 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 no. Um, the one that Augustine uh, argued with. 
Pelagius. We're not like Pelagius believing we can uh, climb up out of our pit by ourselves. We are unable to climb out the pit, but we're able to receive or reject the invitation to come out of the pit. Just like as if we were drowning and the guy is coming to get us with the helicopter, we can keep pushing him away and remain there. But if we accept his help and get lifted up, we don't then take credit for it. We don't say we lifted up ourselves out of the drowning or the pit, whatever, but we can definitely say we chose to do it. And that's going to be the whole point of why it says in in Romans 4, it was credited to Abraham for righteousness when he put his faith in God. It was actually credited to him. Why wasn't it credited back to God for Abraham's faith? It was credited to Abraham because Abraham chose to have faith as it was initiated in his heart by the grace of God. As God initiates us, as we call in prevenient grace, grace that goes ahead, initiates us to believe, to respond, it's our choice. As the person comes down into the pit and wakes us up, shakes us up, and tries you know, to get a hold of us, it's up to us whether or not we want to respond. Now, some people try to say, oh, well, you're just dead. You're already dead, so you don't even have a choice. But that's not the story of dead in the Bible. The prodigal son was dead to his father, but he still made choices, didn't he? In Ephesians, it says we were dead, but we're doing all these things as dead men. So it's not dead as in Lazarus, the example. It's dead as in the prodigal son, dead as in what Adam and Eve were after they died that day, okay? So the dead is not I can't do anything. The dead is that I can't do anything that pleases God. I have no connection to him, but I have still have a choice of receiving him as he initiates a connection with me. Just like uh, we could use the example like I may have had you know, the president's cell phone number, but if I sin against him and he changes his number, that means I can never call him. That's true. I don't have the ability. It's, I'm now dead to him, but he can call me anytime he wants. Or he could tell me what to do to come back to him to show that I'm truly repentant. And that was the thing about the prodigal son. Uh, the prodigal son was dead to the father, but he knew what he needed to do to come back to the father, okay? Amen. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. So the question would be, is the Jew he's talking to one of his cool disciples? I don't really think so. I think what Paul is doing here in Romans is really using the Jewish church that's in the Roman city as his kind of soapbox to start rebuking the entire backslidden Jewish culture. Otherwise, it almost seems like there's no Jew in his church that's saved, if the beginning part is right. But I think when we're reading, excuse me, chapter 2, 3 and onward, we're supposed to understand there are people, Jews, who have already done this, that they're not hypocrites anymore. So now as he goes on this diatribe, it's almost like he's, he's doing what I do in a service. I'm preaching to you guys, but there will be at times I'll start preaching to the unbeliever as if you guys were unbelievers. But I know you're not unbelievers but I want those among us to hear the message, and then I want you to be able to hear how I preach that message so you can bring that message to others. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, just look at this. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Well, I mean, then how in the world are they the church? Because he just talked here in Romans chapter 1. He said that uh, he is called to do these things. And verse 7, rather, you know, chapter 1, verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Well, you're 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 not God's holy people if you're under his wrath. Does everybody get that? So the diatribe, and what, what other people call it, is the interlocutor. The, the one he's debating with, the one he's interlocking with, interlocking with, the one he's wrestling with isn't actually the good Christian of his congregation, the good Jew of his congregation. It's actually this backslidden Jew, like I said before, that has a hard time with Gentiles coming to Christ without converting to Judaism first. So he's going to start letting them have it, and he won't resolve this issue until the end of chapter 11. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So there's a day of judgment that's coming. Look at verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now, if you just stop right there, that sounds like good works-based salvation. 
That's a good works-based salvation passage right there. God's going to judge you by your works. He's going to judge you on what you've done. And actually, the book of Revelation confirms that. But does that deny the future points he's going to make about salvation by faith and what he's already referenced in chapter 1? No, because salvation by faith will bring forth works. Those works will be judged. If you have lived in unbelief, the works of your sinful self will be judged. So there's actually no contradiction in his way of thinking. It's, and, and also, it's not like there was a works-based salvation in the Old Testament, and now there's a grace salvation in the New Testament. He's going to make that point in chapter 4 with, with Abraham. Abraham was not justified with God because he gets circumcised and does all these works. He's right with God because he has faith. But as he'll continue on, he'll talk about we get blessings and, and, and the things of God because we do good works. And if we don't do those things, we'll suffer. So it's not, he's not going to change his gospel message because just remember, the gospel message in 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. He's not contradicting himself. But you will be judged by works. The Christian, after salvation, will be judged by works. And the non-Christian, because they were not saved, okay, will repay each person according to what they've done. Now let me just say this again in verse 6. You'll be repaid for everything you've done. Does that sound like Calvinism or Arminianism? It's what you have done. And the Christian should have done, what the Christian should have done was put faith in Jesus. And then by putting faith in Jesus, they should do what? Good works. And then the unbeliever, it's their fault they're lost. And that's where we're going to build up to this whole conscious thing in a little bit. We'll repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, how do you seek those things? You have to do it by faith. You have to do it by faith. But those who are self-seeking and watch, who reject the truth. See, that's unbelief. Do you get it? So he's not getting away from belief and unbelief. He's just saying it a little bit different of a way. He's, he's saying which, what works you'll have after you have belief or unbelief. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now watch verse 10. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Okay, So now we know Jew and Gentile are going to receive both punishment and um, honor based on whether or not they sought the Lord, for God does not show favoritism. Verse 11. Now watch verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. So it's pretty clear. Even if you didn't have the law, but you're violating it. And here's where I want to make a distinction. I believe it's the moral law. I don't believe this is the capital L law, 613 laws given to Moses. I believe this is the moral law. I can't prove it, but I can make a good case for it, okay? And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Here's my best argument for that the law is the Ten Commandments minus the Sabbath, okay? The moral law. Here it is. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Could, could not having two vegetables in the same garden be written on your heart, or two types of cloth not being sewn together be written on your heart, or uh, purity laws with the woman having her period. No. So what's my best case for what's written on Gentiles' heart? Love the, the moral law. Love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, mind, strength. Have no other gods before him. Thou shalt not steal. Thou, that's what I believe it's talking about, okay? They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even what? Defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now let's unpack this a little bit. I think I've given you my best case for what law is there. 
Is it capital law 613 mosaic laws? I don't believe that. I don't see how there's any way it could be written on the hearts, the consciences of Gentiles, 613 laws. The moral law can be. So the moral law is there, okay? Now, some people may say, Joe, whatever hopes we have of it defending them are crushed in Romans chapter 3 where it begins to say, verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks God. So whatever hope you're giving them in chapter 2 is crushed in chapter 3. But that's not Paul's argument about them. And this is my point. Here is my point. I'll make it a little bit passionate. There is no place the non Law-given Gentile is ever described in the Bible as having a defense in their conscience because they have an inward law, except right here. So basically, those verses are the only verses in the entire Bible. We don't know anything else about them. We know continually that nations, like in Romans 1, who rejected God, who rejected the legacy of God in their culture through Noah or Babylon or through Abraham, and they went away from that, they were handed over to judgment, and then they did these actions which are against the moral law. So it's obvious. Sodom and Gomorrah deserve to be judged. Why? Because Sodom and Gomorrah eventually, uh, uh, previously was a part of Noah's people that came off the boat and then the Tower of Babel. And then they forgot the stories of their God. They willingly forgot and they pushed it under, suppressed it, and went after the things they went after. So when Sodom and Gomorrah is getting judged, they all deserve it. Canaanites, they all deserve it. Okay. But it's not talking about no Old Testament story or passage that I know of other than, other than Ecclesiastes, he said, eternity in their heart. Other than that, we have no description of what the village in China is like who went from Noah's time and yet starts to reject through their elders uh, emperor worship, uh, ancestor worship, and they honor one God. They live morally with each other. When they sin, some of them even practiced animal sacrifice. We have no description in the Bible what happens to that kind of person. Does everybody get that? This is the only thing we have. So number one, uh, people may say uh, this, this crushes them because it says no one is righteous. But that's not Paul's point in two. Two, it's saying there's a defense they get. And everyone is crushed the same way. Number, uh, that's point number one. Point number two, all the stories we have of God's judgments coming to nations, they rightfully deserve it. We don't know about the people Paul is describing. And then number three, this in chapter 3, can't counterject chapter 2 because chapter 2 jumps right ahead to the judgment day and says, they'll be defended, watch this, when this takes place, when God judges people's secrets. So it's not like we can just restrict the defense in the, in, in the moment, in the context of them feeling bad when they do something wrong, or when they do something right, they feel good. Because it actually says on judgment day, he will bring up their secrets, and then some will be accused, and others will be defended. That's my passionate point. How much more can I debate it? I really can't. That's all I can possibly say on that one little rung that I give. What goes hand in hand with that one rung? My belief about children and handicap. Okay, my belief about the children handicapped. Now, those of you who are leaning towards exclusivism, you may be inclusive just in that one sense. Children in handicap who do not know themselves cannot ask for Jesus to be their Lord. They are spared. Okay? If you do not take that position, then you are by definition the most extreme kind of exclusivist, and those are basically only Calvinists. And the reason why they rest in that place is because they cannot leave one person outside of God's choice to be saved or damned. 
And since God only wants people saved this way, all those who didn't get saved that way are automatically damned. And Calvin actually taught that. Doomed from the womb. So there is no middle ground. If a handicapped person died without confessing Christ, if a child is aborted, God forbid, at 30 weeks or whatever, they're going to hell. And, and uh, the lost of the nations, they're going to hell. And that's just the way it is. And God designed the universe for his glory. God gets glory out of creating creatures to send to hell. And they'll take uh, Romans 9, that he takes one lump of clay to do something bad with it, you know, to cast it into hell, and the other to do something good. That's his choice. And he's lit- they literally take that, that, that he's choosing who goes to hell and who goes to heaven. I don't agree with that at all, and I don't think Romans 9 is teaching that at all. What God is doing is with plans and nations, people get to make decisions. Not everybody in Edom had to go to hell uh, just because Edom was being judged. You get that? And not everybody in in Israel went to heaven because Jewish people were being spared, okay? So every individual still makes their choice, and isn't that exactly what he says there? Every person, look at it, uh, going there to verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now, go up a little bit there so you can see that. And I have all the references in the scripture to where that is. Uh, you go, go down just a little bit. Follow, follow me like this. When I say go down, I mean go up. Yeah, that's what I mean because you have to scroll down. Okay? You have to go to chapter 2, verse 6. Look at Psalm chapter 62, verse 12, quickly. Psalm chapter 62, verse 12. Psalm 62, verse 12. Start in verse 11. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Find the right passage, yes. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. Okay, so there's no way around it. But is that a salvation of works? No. Paul already said it's based on what you believe. Based on what you believe determines what you do. That's Paul's message. You disbelieve in God, you reject the truth, you're going to be judging all these evil things you've done. You accept Christ, you have faith in him, or in you know, the God of the old covenant as revealed to you by Moses and the prophets. You accept God and you then obey his word. And you get rewarded for those things. Amen? So go back to chapter 2 of Romans. So we know of no other place where a person is spoken about who follows the law and then dies without hearing either one of the covenants. This is where I rest my case. So I do that even for the sake of children. And, you know, you could have a little bit of a kind of sci-fi belief that children and mentally uh, handicapped people get to be reincarnated in the millennial reign. That's another discussion all to itself. And it says even the child will live to 100 years old, and it kind of almost feels like that, that the children who died might now even live to 100 years old. You, you would have to stretch that. Uh, but, but would it be too difficult for God? Since we're already getting resurrected bodies as believers, that's not too difficult for God to allow those in heaven to come back into bodies. Now, it, you know, they would still be able to make their own choices and live their own life. Who knows what would happen? That's just a weird world and a weird thing to think about. Uh, but could it happen? It could. Some people have that belief. I just share that with you. Some people believe they will get a chance to do that. And then you may say, well, who in the world's ever going to reject God, especially if they were in heaven, come back down to earth? Angels rejected God. So they could still reject God. And then the Bible even says in the millennial reign, as he's loosed after he was bound for a 1,000 years, he gets people to, to follow him again. So deception is deceiving to people who you know, don't want God. So everyone will still have that chance. All right, now let me just read the continuation as he begins to speak about the relationship that Jews are supposed to have with the law and where they're wrong when they don't use the law rightly. Verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Now remember, he's not saying don't preach against stealing. 
Remember, he's not saying stop preaching against it. He's just saying stop stealing while you're preaching against it. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Like the question we always ask about the adulterous woman. Where was the adulterous man? (laughs) Right? Where was the adulterous man? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor or break or do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And I have that in Isaiah 52.5. Let's continue on. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? A little reference back to the top portion there. The one who is not circumcised excuse me, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you. Even though you have the, have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. Even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code, so a person's praise is not from other people but from God. And so he preaches against their hypocrisy. Is that the whole of the church of Rome? No, because then they're all lost. But he just said there's holy people in that church. So he's using them kind of as a platform in this letter to reach out beyond them to maybe some in the congregation, but primarily to the Jewish culture at that time, that was hypocritical. Now, some people will use this scripture and go, see, it's not a Jew who's one outwardly, but one who is circumcised of the heart. God has fulfilled his promises to the Old Testament Jews. That's been replaced now with all the New Testament Jews who are circumcised of the heart. Are you circumcised of the heart? Now you're a Jew and you get to take all their promises. No, that's why I say you got to read the whole entire point. Go, go just quickly to Romans chapter 11. This whole idea that I'm a Jew because I'm circumcised in my heart is a bunch of nonsense. What he is saying is those of you who are Jews by birth, you're not really a Jew unless you're one in heart. But for Gentiles, we're still Gentiles. Even if we get circumcised in the heart, we're still not a Jew in genealogy. Now, do we get the benefits of being Jew? Yes, because in chapter 11, as uh, chapter 10, as he's building upon to chapter 11, we get engrafted with them as a branch. As a, as a wild branch, we get engrafted into them, right? But watch this. That's why it says in, in, in uh, Hezekiah, Chapter 3, not Hezekiah, but Zechariah chapter 3, that Joshua the priest sees a branch. Jesus is the branch, and he's the great, he's the good Jew, and all Jews are blessed because of him, and then all Gentiles get engrafted into him because of him, right? And that's in chapter 10. But at that point of the conclusion of the matter, it's almost like, well, then Jews don't matter. Paul makes this point clear at his conclusion of the diatribe in chapter 11. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000, excuse me, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the what? At the, come on, at the, at the, at the present time, there is a what? A, come on, there is a, remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were by grace, it would, if, it, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Now scroll, um, scroll up. Scroll up. There you go. Verse 11. Again, I asked, did they stumble so on? Did I say it was chapter 10 he said all of those things? 
It's not chapter 10 about the engrafting. It's chapter 11, correct? I was wrong. Chapter 10 is about how all mankind is saved. And then that's where I was saying, some people may, may now say, well, then Jew and Gentile distinctions don't matter. And now scroll all the way down to chapter, scroll up and take me down, please. I need to think of a term that helps you with that. Um, you've, you've, you've gone to chapter 12. Go to the end of chapter 11. Go up a little bit more, please. There you go. Just a little bit more. Okay. As for the gospel is concerned, talking about Jews, they are enemies for your sake. Chapter 11, verse 28. But as for election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. See? They're enemies now, but they're still loved. There's a plan for them. Now watch. For God's gifts and his call are what? Are what? Irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so too they have now become disobedient in order that they too may now have mercy as a result. Excuse me. Um, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So God still has a plan for Israel. Go up to chapter 10. I mixed up the two verses. Go to Romans 10.1. This is where it was made even more clear. I just had the chapters in my mind backwards. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. Okay? And just keep going uh, down in chapter 10. And it says um, that this is how we're all going to get saved. Now go all the way to the end of chapter 10, rather. Go all the way to the end. All, okay, so it does into there. Okay. So... The, the culmination of his point is this, is that though many are hypocrites, God has not forgotten about them. He has not taken away his gift from them. And that is chapter 2. I noticed that you got a little bit excited when it said uh, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of what the people of God do. And that's still a, an applicable uh, portion of Scripture to us in the church that the name of Jesus is blasphemed because of what we do. And the old saying, like by Mahatma Gandhi of India said, I love Jesus, it's his followers I don't like. Now, some people in our culture, and I've heard people argue this when I've stood up against homosexuality and abortion, they take that as meaning you're going to lose the millennials when you stand up against these things. That's exactly the opposite. The welcoming in that the world is giving the church right now is not at all what Christ wants us to do. What Christ wants us to do is to be so holy that we convict the world of their sin and let the Holy Spirit do all those things. So we're not to become uh, watered down and then become their friends and now we get the thumbs up award. We're actually supposed to be hated by them nonetheless, but in, our, in their hatred of us, it's not because of us being hypocrites, it's because we stand on God's righteousness. A great example of that would be with Daniel. They hated Daniel and they only could find to hold against him was, the only thing they could find against him was the, the commitment he had to God. So they'll still not like you, but they'll know that you are true to your belief and that you follow God. Amen? Does everybody understand that difference? Any other questions that you may have from Romans 1 or 2 or anything we discussed today? If we go back to the notes and end it out here, please, I would like to encourage you with this last portion here that was said at the beginning, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. May we never forget what the purpose of repentance is. Repentance isn't just to make us feel bad, man. And sin isn't just the fun stuff that God wants to keep us from. Sin is actually the stuff that destroys the soul. And repentance is what restores us back into right relationship with God. I have been experiencing God in my personal life in ways like I'd never have before. I'm in a personal revival. And I see our church is in the beginning stage of a revival. And so I want to encourage you to not view repentance as something like it's a bad thing. You know, like, oh, man, I got to repent or catch a rebuke, you know, whatever. The Bible says the wise receive rebukes, you know, that, that you go after the things of God, that you really want to, to pray prayers like David. Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, show me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's the end of Psalm 139. Let's go to the end of Psalm 139, just in closing here. That's the kind of prayer we should pray because we don't want to be the hypocrites of this world. 
you know, if people hold something against me, that's fine, you know, if it has to do with my, my belief and who God is, what my preaching is, or the judgments of the word, but let it not be against my character. The end of Psalm 139, please. The idea is, as the Bible says, even in Peter, if they persecute you let, let, and they hate you, let them do it for something good that you're doing, not for the evil you do. You guys remember that? Isn't that a powerful part? It says here at the end, search me, God, and know my heart. Verse 23, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's take the next few moments to do that, just in the attitude of prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we ask you to look at our hearts and to expose any wicked way in in us, any hypocritical way, any way that would put us in the same category of the Jews that were being rebuked with, uh, with Paul's diatribe. May we come to the understanding that if we preach against those things but do them, we're no better than those who are doing them. Our preaching against it doesn't get us brownie points with you. And even now, I I feel particularly, Lord, led to pray for those in the Republican Party. We look down on the Democrats, or even the independents, or just conservatives. They'll look down on the Democrats for all that they do in wickedness, which is true. Abortion is wicked. Homosexuality is wicked. But these same conservatives, whether they be libertarians, independents, or Republicans, they still look at pornography. They still cheat on their wives. They still get drunk. They get divorced without reason. They don't put you first. They make the Super Bowl in their sports their idols, and they think they're better for that. And, Lord, I pray they get convicted. I pray that there will be righteousness in our government. I pray for those maybe in this church who think to themselves, well, I'm not as bad as the sinners I'm preaching to. You know, that gangbanger, he's going to hell because he doesn't know Jesus. I know Jesus. I'm better. But yet that person still looks at porn. That person still is rebellious. They don't listen to God and they don't listen to you, Lord. I pray that they feel convicted. And I pray for us even here. If we say we're Bible college students and we don't do those other things, but but if we're rebellious towards our professors and we're bitter towards those who hurt us in ministry because they don't exalt us quick enough or give us position or we hold against the hurt of the past, you know, what people have done to us in the church, Lord, I pray you convict us because we will be judged by the same standard. And so whenever we feel you convicting us, may we repent. As I put up on Facebook from what you had showed me, Lord, what you're dealing with in private is a mercy to us because if we don't listen to it and deal with it in private, you're going to expose it and deal with it in public. And, Lord, I've seen too many ministers get dealt with in public, and it's an embarrassment. It's a shame against the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray that our hearts will be pure. You'll lead us in the way everlasting. And we'll live according to your righteous standard in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus. Amen. I love you.